0: Hey, I'm April Pride, your host on the High Guide podcast. This is the show for women who have an open and curious mind, and this is a show all about women changing their lives thanks to altered states. Today, we have something special for you. In place of an episode produced by the High Guide, we've swapped episodes with our other favorite podcast about psychedelics, Field Tripping a podcast about epic personal, spiritual, and business journeys on and in psychedelics. I was first introduced to Field Tripping through the Field Trip app, a handy pocket, high guide, so to speak, featuring music to trip to and a journal to track specifics related to your psychedelic experiences, dosage, intention, insights. Beyond the app and the show is Field Trip Health, a North American chain of clinics offering ketamine-assisted therapy to qualified patients and with a mission to bring the world to life through psychedelics and psychedelic-enhanced psychotherapy. I look forward to sharing more on ketamine for treatment-resistant depression and what I've learned about this modality as it relates to women in future episodes of The High Guide. In today's episode, the host of Field Tripping, Ronan Leaving. Who also serves as the co founder and chairman of Field Trip Health is in discussion with Dr. Julie Holland, MD. She's a psychopharmacologist, psychiatrist, and author whose books include Ecstasy, The Complete Guide, and The Pop Book, and most recently, Good Chemistry. In this episode, Julie sits down with Ronan and Field Trip Health's chief psychologist, Dr. Dominique Morsano, to discuss. Their thoughts on the stigmatization of the soul in medicine, and among other things, the implications of the current psychedelic renaissance we're experiencing today. My favorite part of the episode is when Dr. Holland and Dr. Morisano share their thoughts on ketamine and its place in psychedelic assisted therapy. If you're considering ketamine treatment, check out FieldTrip's website at fieldtriphealth.com to start your research. And you can sign up for an evaluation to see if you're qualified for treatment in one of their clinics. Enjoy the show.
1: So, I mean, this issue of equity and access, you know, we should probably mention that there is such a thing as racial trauma. You know, that people who are, who are experiencing micro or macro aggressions related to their race, like these people are traumatized on a daily basis. And it would really be great if we can focus on sort of treating victims of racial trauma and and to show that things like ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, that these things really have the capacity to to help heal.
2: And also building capacity in BIPOC communities, like to be the therapists and be the people working.
1: Definitely.
3: This is Field Tripping, a podcast dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Julie Holland to the podcast. Julie is a psychopharmacologist, psychiatrist, and the author of the books Moody Bitches and Weekends at Bellevue, an absorbing memoir that recounts tragic comic and moving case file stories from nine years in the psychiatric emergency room in new york city julie is an advocate for the appropriate use of consciousness expanding substances as part of mental health treatment and she's a medical advisor to maps studying mdma assisted psychotherapy and the treatment of ptsd julie is a worldwide expert on street drugs And has appeared on the Today Show over 25 times, as well as Good Morning America, CNN, Dr. Oz, The Doctors, Vice Media, and more. Currently, she's a forensic consultant for drug-related cases, a lecturer, and in private practice in New York. I'd also like to welcome Dr. Dominique Morisano back to the podcast. Dominique is Field Trip's chief psychologist and joined us on the episode with Dan and Voica from Operators. Dominique is also a big fan of Julie's work, so this is going to be fun. One of the questions that immediately came to mind as you, your name popped up, and this is just a totally random question, but you you identify as Julie Holland, MD, as opposed to Doctor Julie Holland. Is there any reason for that? Like, what's the thought process? Because I know a lot of people are sensitive about like being called Doctor or comma MD. And I've never really understood the the narrative or the mindset behind it. And just wondering if that was a conscious decision or is it something you, you happened into?
1: I mean, it's pretty longstanding. You know, my grandfather used to jokingly call me Dr. Julie Holland, MD, just to make sure he got it on both <laughs> ends. It was like that yeah. important to him. But I think, you know, one of the reasons why I identify myself that way on podcasts or webcasts is because sometimes I'm the only physician in the group. And I like to identify myself as, as like somebody who's a medical doctor, who is a physician, who, you know, likes to think they understand the body and the way it works and that I'm going to have a different approach. You know, I have a really biological approach as much as I like to talk about soul and spiritual practices and things like that. So I, I've got a real sort of biopsych, psychopharm perspective. So I just sort of like to identify myself visually so people know that that's kind of probably where I'm coming from.
3: Cool. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. And uh, you just touched on one of the things actually I wanted to get into later on, but as you raised it, let's just dive into it, which is how do you integrate the biological and the you know spiritual, emotional, less objective kind of conversations? I, I mean, it's, I think the most important thing we can be doing and something I'm a big proponent of not being a doctor. How do you draw those kind of lines and, um, how do you integrate them? And I imagine it creates a lot of conflict, uh, at some points in your lives. And I'll just give an example that, uh, is close to me because it happened to one of my best friend's wives. She's, um, a pediatric neurologist. She was a pediatric neurologist at Stanford and she wanted to take her research in the direction of how touch and hugging after a traumatic incident can have an impact on the healing process. And Stanford basically said no and basically took away her tenure and, and now she's doing other things. And I think she's truthfully much happier doing these other things, but it's a story that I imagine resonates with you uh, along your journey as well. So would love to hear your thoughts about all of that kind of stuff.
1: It's funny, you know. One of my earliest uh, papers in college was uh, called "The Need or Wish to Be Held" and and how that plays out in behaviors. And it's actually she should be studying it. I'm sorry that Stanford didn't see how important touch and hugging and being held is to the body and our physiology and how resilient we are against trauma. I guess to some degree. So, I mean, you were asking how I sort of reconcile the soul part with the medicine part, and the last book that I wrote. Uh, it's called Good Chemistry. And the subtitle is The Science of Connection from Soul to Psychedelics. And it was really hard for me to put the word soul out there. I felt like I was outing myself by using the word soul as a psychiatrist. And whenever I was in my office talking to a patient, if I said soul, I would do the air quotes, you know, or I would say, I'm sorry, I'm using this word. I would some sort of like preface, you know, a destigmatization of, of my using the word before I used it. And Uh, I learned over time that it was completely unnecessary and I should just chill out. You know, people are comfortable with this idea between like Soul Cycle or the movie Soul or there's, you know, there's so many products that have the word soul in it now that at least in terms of like our capitalist society, we've glommed on to soul and defanged it a little bit. But in psychiatry, it's not a word you're supposed to use. You're not really supposed to talk about uh, spiritual awakenings or spiritual processes or rituals or, you know, so many of the things that we inevitably talk about when we talk about psychedelics and psychedelic-assisted psychotherapy, you're not really supposed to talk about in psychiatry. But you know, one of the reasons that I wanted to put that subtitle on the cover is that i it's time we talk about it. It's useful to talk about it. The truth is that there's a certain amount of soul sickness that happens in people who have panic attacks or depression or addiction or compulsive eating or compulsive shopping or compulsive sexing and cheating on their partners. You know, when you look at a lot of what drives pathological behavior, there is an element of sort of soul sickness. And if that you can kind of get right with your purpose and get right with you know, what brings you joy and what really has meaning to you. And that's really like what feeds your soul, you know, and sorry, but that's the reality.
3: A hundred percent. I agree with that. I'm curious to go a little bit further in terms of your personal perspectives, which is, and it's just something I find incredibly fascinating uh, and the conversation that goes around it. But the idea of of being a materialist or, or a dualist, which is like, do we come from our soul or is the soul kind of a construct of our brain? Because, in my journey and the work I've done personally, one of the hurdles that Erwin, the person I work with, you know, really forced me to confront was it works a lot better when you just don't kind of suspend your disbelief around the idea of a soul and a future self and a higher self and all that kind of stuff and actually get past it and lean into it and accept it as, as a reality as opposed to a construct. And that's, certainly hard for me and I've spent a lot of time with it. And I suspect it's going to be extremely hard for a lot of people who are starting to go down this road. And I I certainly think that psychedelics are a great springboard to maybe leap past the hurdle. But I think a really valuable tool is understanding people who have gone down this road and and their perspectives and their honest truths around this, which is maybe it's a constructor or or maybe it's real, but here's to know where you land on that, on that question.
1: Well, it sounds like you're sort of getting at what, you know, what my own perspectives or my own experiences have been. I mean, as much as I feel compelled to say that I would like to acknowledge my uh, privilege where I'm sitting from and also acknowledge that I'm sitting on land stolen from the Lenape people, I would also like to acknowledge that I have a history of getting in touch with what feeds my soul and what makes my heart sing. From a pretty young age, you know, when I was a a teenager growing up in the seventies in the suburbs of boston i I was a drug researcher, really, from a very early age, but you know I didn't know that that's what I was, and I certainly grew into my role being involved in psychedelic drug research and being a medical monitor. Uh, I was always obsessed with medical safety from a very young age, but I also had this sense that you know it wasn't really playing with fire and that these were powerful tools that if you kind of read the manual and put on your goggles, you could avail yourself of the of the power of these tools. So I had lots of experiences uh, in you know, really formative years. People say like I dabbled as an adolescent or whatever. But the truth is that, you know, adolescence is when a lot of stuff really kind of gels and sticks for people. And it's an interesting time in brain development where your brain is sort of Marie Kondoing, you know, does this spark joy or should we get rid of it? And there's there's a lot of pruning and cleaning up that goes on. You know, the prepubescent brain is just a sponge, taking in a lot of stuff on a very deep level. And then the adolescent brain is sort of trying to make sense of it and getting rid of things and sort of narrowing the definitions of things. So, for many people that that early experimentation that happens, like that stuff, is in there pretty deep. You know, I don't know what you were doing in like seventh or eighth or ninth grade, but whatever you were doing then, you still know how to do that. I don't know if you were, you know, learning to skateboard or play a saxophone, but I guarantee you that if you learned it around puberty, you can still do it in your sleep practically. Like that stuff really gets hardwired and deep. And so for me, really, to be honest, some of the stuff that got hardwired and deep was my ability to learn from from psychedelics. So. I feel like I come about it naturally. I know it's hard for people to sort of out themselves as psychonauts.
3: You know, it's it's part of the platform that I want to provide through this podcast and a lot of the work we're doing. It's like, you know, for the people who can out themselves as either psychonauts or spiritualists and, and really, I, I would say like modern spiritualists, which is, you know, it I don't come across as a hippie. Maybe if you listen to this podcast, people think I'm really out there. But I think in most day-to-day conversations, like I could come across as pretty normal and pretty relatable, even though that some of the views I have, I think a lot of modern Western life would be like you're weird, right? And I use that word very consciously. And then, so this is a, you know, a real platform and an opportunity. And and I use it as as much as I can to bring about that conversation and saying, it's it's okay to talk about your soul. It's okay to talk about your future self. It's okay to talk about your higher self and not just use those as conceptual constructs, but to accept them as truths, not be necessarily afraid of that. But uh, I will ping pong the question over to Dominique as well, to to get your thoughts on this.
2: It's a really interesting question. And I guess I'm still at the point where Julie mentioned being maybe with the air quotes with my clients, you know, because I have a lot of clients that very strongly identify as atheists and not just atheists, but strong atheists. And so I try to leave space in my work with people to kind of think about maybe not soul, but connection to this planet or the state that we're in, or like a community of people or like something bigger than themselves, even if it's not a soul per se. But when people mention soul and work with me, I jump all over it, um, to be honest. And I I really love that. And I I get to run with it. And so I have found it's been hard not to think about soul in work with psychedelics and work with alternate states of consciousness, because you become so, I guess, directly faced with it.
3: Yeah, no, I I totally hear you. And it came out of A conversation with someone who went through our treatments. And, you know, she relayed to me that she had never tried psychedelics, at least larger doses before. But after she had had her ketamine experience, she found that she found the profound in the mundane. And it totally, it really resonated with me because to some degree it's like, yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things that happen with psychedelics, but. Anyone who's found that kind of beauty in something, you know, everyone knows that energy—if you know whatever you want to call it—that feeling, you know, of just being totally engrossed by something truly magical or beautiful or whatever descriptor you want to put around it—and it's like when you're in that space, it's almost impossible to let all of those things that cause anxiety and depression and, and all of the mental health conditions that we talk about really start to infiltrate. And it's hard to stay in that space, but touching that experience even briefly, I think can be, you know, totally transformative. Like I've talked about how like I think beauty is a transformative energy. When you experience it, it changes you, you know, and it doesn't have to mean aesthetically beautiful, but you know the feeling uh, of something that's beautiful uh, on an energetic level. And and, you know, that's part of the things that's so exciting about psychedelics, but it takes the conversation a little bit further of like, is this just a biochemical experience, or is it actually something truly profound.
1: I mean, even if it is just biochemical and physiological, it, it can still be truly profound. And, you know, when you talk about the experiencing something magical in the mundane, I think about, um, dehabituation, which is something that also happens with cannabis, right? You can approach something with fresh eyes I do consider cannabis to be sort of a, a minor psychedelic. It has a lot of features of psychedelic. You know, I would say that high-dose THC is pretty much psychedelic. You do end up getting sort of a tickling of the 5-HT2A receptor. There's a there's a dimer. There's a dimerization that happens between the CB1 receptor and the 5-HT2A receptor if you give it enough THC. So this idea that cannabis is psychedelic, I think there's real sort of physiological fact Beneath it. But anyway, my point of this is that what cannabis, one of the things that cannabis does, besides being a great anti-inflammatory, and we all know that psychedelics are also great anti-inflammatories, but it's this idea of fresh eyes, right? That you're dehabituated and you look at something as if you've never seen it before. So that increases the likelihood that you will find that magic and beauty just because of the novelty. It's more engaging. You're more likely to take another look.
3: I had that experience recently when I, I had used some cannabis and I just got the sense that drugs almost work like a filter. You know, they filter out certain energies or certain resonances and, and open you up to feel or see different ones or see the things in a different light. And and that can be true about psychedelics. That can be true about cannabis. Truthfully, that can be true about alcohol and and probably some more destructive drugs as well.
1: As much as I would say, I'm, I'm not the hugest fan of ketamine. I think ketamine has it's like the best thing we have right now. You know, the, one of the best things I can say about ketamine is that it's legal. It's allowing us to create the infrastructure, to create the framework, and to get people comfortable with the idea that you can take a medicine to help you have a better therapy session. I mean, you know, Ronan, Dominique, and, and I, this is not news to us, right? We get this. This is the future. But for people who've just never even heard of it, it's really like a paradigm shift, it's like a disruptive way of doing psychiatry. Like what? You don't take a daily dose of the medicine every day so that you don't mind the way your life is? (laughs) Like you take a big dose of something so you can really look at, at and fix your life. Like, And what's great about ketamine is that because it's FDA approved, because everybody's comfortable with it, maybe even your insurance will reimburse you. It's getting everything in place for what's coming next, which will be so much better, which is MDMA assisted therapy, psilocybin assisted therapy. Like, you think ketamine's impressive? Wait till we show you <laughs> what really works.
3: I agree. I mean, that's always been the foundation of what we've been bu- building at Field Trip. And truthfully, you know, my attitude has changed and evolved even since we started, which I always saw ketamine as a stepping stone to the future of, of psychedelic therapies with psilocybin. But having witnessed the transformations that we've experienced in our clinic so far, I see it as, as just one piece of an arsenal, you know, it's kind of like, you don't go to the heaviest antibiotics for someone experiencing infection, y- you work up to it. And, and so I've, I've really kind of opened my mind that ketamine is an amazing and powerful tool. It's, it's relatively safe, you know, and it's a great, easy entry point into this kind of exploration.
2: I guess there's all kinds of, you know, ab- approaches, you know, s- some of my more scientific identified you know clients are very stern with me about this so so we yeah <laughs> so we honor where that where that is I wanted to follow up on the the ketamine piece because I I was also in that in that kind of mind frame even before I started at field trip and my thoughts and opinions have changed so hugely over the past year in witnessing all of the the stories and like the seeing the patients change profoundly And I have so much more respect and, I guess, care for Academy now than I did a year ago. Um, And it blew my mind a little bit because I had come in with a particular, I guess, bias and perspective. And then when I actually saw how it was being used with the IM and the kind of experiences that people were having, the really deep plunging that took place and the way that the therapists were able to kind of work with people to pull the the insights and the stories. It was, I don't know, it's been very incredible. One therapist described it this morning with group session as like magical.
3: Two questions. Um, How much flack did you get for the name Moody Bitches on a book? Did you get any pushback on that? Because I think it's awesome. And then secondly, and I'll just leave it with you to kind of go into this. Can you take us into like the understanding of the yin and yang? Because I think for, and I'm going to speak on behalf of a lot of men, as soon as they hear anything to do with feminine, they think of feminism And they get their backs up. And like I see what we're talking about, which is it's not feminism, it's about feminine energies and what that means and how we can all kind of move towards a more balanced state in a way that I think is healthy and productive, you know, and and recognize the effects of chauvinism being what has imbalanced those masculine and feminine energies.
1: You're right to ask those two questions together because they are absolutely connected. So, you know, when I I had a really good book proposal for a book called Moody Bitches. And everybody I showed it to, every agent, every editor, every publisher, they loved it. Everybody loved it. They didn't want to change the title. They thought it was perfect. They thought it was funny and sharp and edgy. But when it actually got published, nobody wanted to walk around with a book that said Moody Bitches on it. And I assumed that it was the bitches that was an issue. But I have come to see that it is actually the word moody which was uh, more of a trigger for people that they didn't want to identify as being moody. Anyway, it was totally a joke. I'm very jokey. I love to make jokes. It's my defense mechanism. I'm usually being kind of sarcastic and tongue-in-cheek, but you can't tell when it's printed on the cover of a book. So people didn't know that I was trying to be funny. But I I think that this issue of yin suppression and uh, what my partner Jeremy likes to call the cancer of yang First of all, I don't usually say feminine or masculine energies because if i if you just think of yin or yang, try not to think of gender at all, really that you know yang is the sort of penetrative energy it's like the the bullet or the arrow that goes out into the world there's a vector to it, it moves, it penetrates, maybe shoot first, ask questions later. that's kind of a yang energy, and then a yin is more hanging back let's be receptive, let's see what's going on before we just. Uh, act impulsively let's gather information let's integrate it's a receptive kind of a energy it, it doesn't necessarily have to be women or men you know i mean i'm i'm a yang woman married to a yin man so you know it, we can disengage these things from gender but what's happened in our culture for a long time is that boys were told don't cry you know uh, be a man but what i made the case in moody bitches is that eventually those messages that men were getting the women started getting too You're in a man's world, so you've got to be yang, and you've got to go after what you want, and you can't be emotional, and, you know, you can't hesitate. And so we've all been getting these messages that to succeed in a capitalist society, you need yang energy. And so now we are imbalanced. And one of the things that psychedelics do, and one of the things that cannabis does, and one of the things that sex does and cuddling does... um, and meditation does, is it puts us in this sort of yin receptive rest, digest, reflect, repair kind of a state instead of fighting, attacking, or running away. So that yin energy allows us to stay. Instead of attacking or fleeing, it allows us to stay. It allows us to stay in the room with our lovers, you know, when we're having hard discussions, it allows us to stay with ourselves when we want to escape through drugs or alcohol or food or sex or shopping. And so we need more of that yin energy, you know, and it's, it's, it has nothing really to do with men and women. We are out of balance. We are very yang heavy. There's a cancer of yang. And if you look at things like uh, the military or uh, fraternities and hazing or boardrooms, you know, there's this sort of culture of growth at any cost, which in medicine, by the way, growth at any cost, unrestricted growth, that's what we call cancer. It's not sustainable. Yin is sustainable. Yang is that you're depleting your resources.
3: It does not need to be framed in in terms of genderization, in terms of masculine feminine, but you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is the implications of that distortion of the heavy overweight of yang, particularly in men, has also correspondingly created, I think, a counterpoint of the yin in women, right? You see it, particularly in professional context, it seems to be a common theme that women are afraid to ask for promotions or ask for raises, where, whereas men don't. You know, it's not exclusively so, but that seems to be a common theme. So there's lots of implications of how this plays out. That does not effect, not uniformly, but does get expressed, I think, a lot through gender in our society.
1: You know, I think it is important to have not just a a gender balance and a showing up of of people from the BIPOC community in the boardroom, but you really need like a, a yin presence in the boardroom. It's true if it's just a bunch of yang women and a bunch of yang men, you still don't have much balance. But I just, I, unfortunately, I think we're still in a place where people do not prize yin energy, where they don't prize people who kind of hang back and and aren't immediately in the game.
2: I think I identify with Julie. I I think I also have a lot of yang energy. But one thing that's helped me bring more yin into my life has been meditation, because I've been doing that, you know, every day now, like through the pandemic. And uh, it really allows me to kind of stop shooting from the hip as much and like to kind of think, take a step back, process a situation in the whole and then kind of respond rather than react. But it is true. It's it's not necessarily as, as valued. And I think yin, yin voices tend to get muted.
3: In my conversation with Julie, we touched on the topic of yin and yang, or masculine and feminine energies at some length. And I think it's a very important conversation to have. But I also think it's important to not jump to some of the obvious conclusions that one might tend to jump to out of that conversation, specifically being, let's fix this, we just need more yin in this world. The truth is, I'm a big believer we need a better balance between yin and yang. But before anyone jumps to any action, I say, chill out. As important as it is to recognize that more yin is needed, what I think is more important is to recognize that it's easy to confuse symmetry with balance. That symmetry of yin and yang should not be the goal, but rather the balance of the two should be. And to achieve balance, sometimes asymmetries are needed. In fact, I would argue that most of the significant modern achievements in humanity and medicine have been achieved by a heavy overweight in yang or masculine energies. And that's a wonderful thing. As a species, we are living longer than ever, less people are in poverty or hungry than ever in history, and we have built technologies that are pushing the limits of objective physical reality. And much of that has been built on data, knowledge, creation, and action, all typically yang energies. But we are also starting to see cracks from this imbalance of yin and yang. We are living longer, yes, but as evidenced by the global mental health crisis, we are pretty miserable. We have created amazing wealth and technologies, but we are also pushing the limits of what a round blue and green planet can provide. And so before we rush to fix the underweighting of yin energies, which ironically would be a very yang thing to do, let's start by taking a moment to just realize that we need a rebalancing, and sit with that even for the briefest of moments. Because as Tom Robbins says, doesn't matter how sensitive you are or how damn smart and educated you are. If you're not both at the same time, if your heart and your brain aren't connected, aren't working together harmoniously, well, you're just hopping through life on one leg. You may think you're walking, you may think you're running a damn marathon, but you're only on a hot trip. The connection's got to be maintained. So Julie... You know, you're you're a doctor, you're an academic, you're an author. From my read of things, and I certainly have not been able to go deep on all of your work, but uh, from from what I've ever been able to glean, you've really been at the forefront and a a very powerful voice on a lot of uh, subjects that you know are taboo um, or you know weren't weren't necessarily ready for for the current time. Um, You know from feminine power and the balancing of the yin and the yang to the cannabis to, to psychedelics. I wanted to ask, like what's what's getting you out of bed this morning? It seems like you've been ahead of the curve on so many things. It's like, what is the next thing? Or is like, is that enough right now?
1: Somebody asked me recently because she was like in a position of power and she's like, what can I do for you? What can I get you? And I was like, thank you. But I was like, I'm a I'm a middle-aged mother of two. I'm a fifty-five year old woman and I've A lot of things that were really that were getting me up in the morning for decades are finally have taken on a life of their own and have their own momentum. And I don't need to push them anymore, you know, and like it's incredibly gratifying for me to know that these things that I've been pushing for for 30 years, they're going to happen. They are happening now. And I can I can pull back a little bit. So, you know, what I've been really focusing on this past pandemic year is, you know, connection, oxytocin, how sort of disconnected we are, how entrenched in our you know laptops and phones we are i've been making music every day with my husband and sometimes son and sometimes daughter that's turned into like a daily discipline that i that we are we're posting a song a day on facebook and we're recording music every day and i'm going out in nature a lot and my husband and i are really the thing that we are focusing on because jeremy has been really patient and i'm like after this book we'll, okay one more book and then we'll do this so he's like now is the time so what we're really focusing now on now is dyads couplehood how incredibly challenging it is no matter how spiritually enlightened you think you are to stay in a relationship to stay married to come up a, a, you know against the their vision of you over and over like a mirror basically you know when you're in a relationship somebody's always throwing a mirror up to you you don't always want to look in that mirror so we're trying to put something together about couplehood, and and we're I think we, you know we're really trying to write a book together, Jeremy and I.
3: What are your thoughts about what is happening with the current psychedelic renaissance? You know, I think there's some suggestions about calling it you know a telescope process, but like what what do you see that you like, and what do you see that you don't like about what's happening, and, and what gives you heartburn and keeps you up at night, and, and what gives you a lot of hope and, and joy through what's happening right now
1: what keeps me up at night really it's the it's the territorial pissings it's the land grabs it's the intellectual property it's very yang behavior it's very capitalist behavior it is not communal or social or yin you know we all have these lessons that we're supposedly learning from psychedelics about how we're all one and love is the answer and everything is interconnected and that separation is an illusion, right? I mean, these are all like the basic things that you learn in a mystical experience. Then we go out into the world and say, "This is mine; you can't have it." So, anti-competitive practices, you know, patent disputes—all the stuff that's good. I don't think that you can patent psychotherapy.
3: And and what gets you happy? Like, what where where do you see things going extremely well and being like? Besides the fact that it's just happening, which is like certainly uh, I think something to appreciate, but.
1: You know, one of the things that gets me happy, seriously, is about 30 years ago, I went to the chairman of psychiatry at Mount Sinai Hospital, a guy named Ken Davis, who is now like the CEO of Mount Sinai Medical. He's like really risen through the ranks. But I went to him in in 1992, right after the FDA allowed Charlie Grobe to give MDMA to healthy normals. And I went back to Sinai and I was like, we need to do MDMA research. This is happening. It's big. It's exciting. And he was just like, there's no way we're ever doing that here. It's not going to happen, not in my backyard. Flash forward 30 years later, and Mount Sinai Hospital is creating a, you know, Center for Psychedelic Studies and looking at trauma and psychedelic psychotherapy. You know, I've been in touch with Rachel Yehuda, and I keep saying, like, if there is a groundbreaking ceremony, if there is a party, you know, I want to be there. And then the other thing that makes me happy is when when women are getting recognized and when uh, women are being given the same sort of platforms that the men are getting. You know, if you watch a documentary about psychedelics, Uh, any news story about psychedelics. And I love these guys, right? You know, I've known Rick like 35 years or something crazy like that since 1985. You know, I love him. He's done a lot. He gets a lot of credit. He should get a lot of credit. But you know who's behind Rick? You know who runs MAPS? It's a bunch of women. Do you know who runs Hopkins? Anytime you kind of peel back the curtain, the guy who's, you know, being interviewed and taking credit is that there's just like a, there's a lot of people behind them that they deserve some time in the spotlight, so that would make me happy if uh, if more women were being featured
2: yeah, I really second a lot of what Julie said about the issues of the you know competition and and secrecy and and just like that territorialism and i'm I'm really working with a lot of people to try to to combat that, I would say and try to keep that like spirit of what we're doing that connectedness that kind of joint mission or um, shared vision alive. I think what's also been a st- a sticking point is a lot of confusion or, and um, maybe disagreement or lack of light on I- issues around accessibility and cultural considerations and appropriations and use of like religion and spiritual traditions and or lack of use of them and, and integration of those two things in research and, and the practice. And I'm really hopeful that we can figure out a way um, to open open this space up for everybody who needs it and honor all of the different paths that people are coming towards this point on.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, the accessibility issue is really a big deal, you know, access, the people who are the most marginalized, most traumatized, the most in need of this medicine are, in many cases, the people who are least likely to actually get it.
3: Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a big challenge. And, you know, it's something that we talk about, but I don't have a great answer about how you go about doing it. There's there's no simple answer, as far as I can tell.
1: Well, I do think one one big hurdle that if we can get over will really make a difference is insurance reimbursement. Right. I mean, I get that not everybody has health insurance, but if we can start with creating a CPT code, you know, to actually get reimbursed by insurance companies and obviously more people need to be insured or God forbid, we should just have national health care. But then it becomes much more accessible to many people. So, I mean, this issue of equity and access, you know, we should probably mention that there is such a thing as racial trauma, you know, that people who are who are experiencing micro or macro aggressions. Related to their race, like these people are traumatized on a daily basis, and it would really be great if we can focus on sort of treating victims of racial trauma, and and to show that things like ketamine-assisted psychotherapy, psilocybin-assisted psychotherapy, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy, that these things really have the capacity to to help heal,
2: and also building capacity in BIPOC communities, like to be the therapists and and be the people working. Definitely.
3: Question I have, and, and it may be an, inflammatory, but I'm asking it just because I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my head around uh, that is like I read somewhere uh, a quote that said there are many ways to victimize a, a person. And one of the most insidious is to convince them that they're a victim. And it comes to the question of like trauma, which is like, yeah, there is racial trauma. There's no doubt about that. Maybe everybody's a victim of racial trauma. I don't know. You know, one of the things I get concerned about is like if I don't perceive myself as a victim of racial trauma, I don't like to be categorized that way. And and again, I'm speaking from the perspective of a a successful white guy in in this world. So, like, my perspective is probably very skewed, but it is one of those things that I wrestle with, which is, you know, in the context of field trip, it's like I don't want to call any of our patients patients because just by calling them a patient, you've created a narrative about who they are and where they are. And it's, putting something on them same with you know saying someone's a victim of trauma you know it's, it's kind of like the old expression that like by physics bumblebees shouldn't be able to fly but they don't know that so they go ahead and keep on flying and I'm just always kind of thinking about how do you balance that, or maybe it doesn't need to be balanced. Maybe I'm entirely wrong in, in thinking that there's a, a conversation there, but you know, I'd really be curious to hear your thoughts on that.
1: It is a good point. I mean, even just saying doctor patient, you're disempowering, uh, half of the people in that group. So it is true that the word client really gives people more power. And I also sort of think about, you know, everybody has some trauma And even if for some reason you had an amazingly perfect childhood, you may have epigenetic trauma. Like maybe, Ronan, you had an easy time of it, but your great-grandfather was murdered in a pogrom or something. There are still situations where even though you don't have it too tough or maybe you feel privileged, if you go back a few generations, uh, you were persecuted. So, I mean, there is... There is this issue of of epigenetic trauma, but I do agree with that you want to empower people as much as possible and that and you don't want to assume that somebody is the victim of anything unless that is how they're identifying because it does take away their, their power for that narrative, I agree.
2: And the impact of trauma is often on, you know, the resources that someone has to kind of face that trauma. And so 10 people could be at the same event or have the same thing happen to them, and they might have very different uh, responses based on their genetics, their epigenetics, their resilience uh, strategies that they've developed, their coping skills, um, the sourcing and community around them. And so it's really about, yeah, never putting trauma on someone,
1: but being there to to receive it and support when someone wants support it's a great sort of experiment uh, It wasn't my experiment but the, you know this idea that everyone is being traumatized at once with covid it's an evil experiment you know <laughs> but everyone is affected i mean unless you don't believe in it and maybe that's that maybe then you really have no trauma at all you're like what there's no virus this is a hoax and then you go about your business and you're fine the fact of covid uh, is applied evenly, but the effect of COVID obviously isn't applied evenly, and so it, it is sort of an experiment to see like how people handle trauma. And you know, like my patients who are who are privileged and have money, and they're you know they're seeing a private psychiatrist. Some of them handle it better than others, but almost all of my patients, if you scratch a little, I'm I'm okay, I'm okay. But then you scratch a little more, and it's like, well, you know, I have gained twenty pounds, or well you know, I'm, I'm smoking pot every day or I'm drinking every night or eating junk food. I never used to do that. Like, you know, you do start to get a sense of how people are dealing.
3: It is a a huge global experiment that's happening right now. And I agree with you. It's like, everyone's affected by this. You can't even, even if you're a denier, you know, people who aren't deniers and therefore it's affecting your relationships. And and so it's it's a universal experience right now uh, to some degree. And it's like, as negative and as traumatizing as it has been, I also tried to see the silver lining in this, which is like it is forcing people to confront their demons, right? Like it's basically brought all of your issues, or not all of your issues, but some of your issues have come to the surface. It's like smacking you in the face, and like it's time to deal with your social anxiety. It's time to deal with your financial anxiety. It's time to deal, uh, you know, with your agoraphobia or anything else. And and so you know, it, it's also been a great pause in a very productive way. And it sounds like. Like you touched on this earlier, Julie, but uh love to go into a little bit more. It's like I've spent a lot of time because a lot of my shit came up very early on. You know, it's it, we, humans are remarkably resilient. And so like everyone's probably found a pretty good new groove, even if it's not ideal. Uh, and certainly I have. But at the beginning, you know, I, I, there was a lot of stuff coming up for me. And out of this, like I feel like I'm actually... Had a lot of growth. I, like I feel like my relationship with with Stephanie, my wife, is that much stronger. Even though at times it was that much more rocky. You know, my my relationships with my friends have gone deeper. You know, as we've gone through this process together. So, uh, it sounds like you you've resorted to to singing as as your mechanism to, <laughs> to 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 sort of find growth in this. But curious to know, like what what you've really found uh, or what came up for you as as you've gone through this process.
1: Well, I did put on a little weight. I will admit. Um, Not a lot, but like I definitely am allowing myself to eat like cheese puffs and uh, Cheez-Its crackers and and chocolate, stuff that I I never, ever eat. Pasta, bread, never eat it. I've been eating it for about a year. Not crazy, but like just that seems to help, you know, balance things out somehow. So uh, I soothe myself orally, as many people do. And then I'm just, I'm trying to to do cardio, but mostly the the two things that have really saved me are I get out in nature a lot. I live, we've got 12 acres of woods that abut against like 60 more acres of woods. We've got a lake across the street, a really beautiful swamp. Uh, Wetlands are gorgeous. There's lots of birds. So like I have access to nature. And speaking of nature, I have access to cannabis. And for me, a little bit of well-placed cannabis really helps with resilience and sort of stress tolerance.
3: Dominique, what about you? What's uh, what kind of awarenesses have come up for you?
1: I am working too much, probably.
2: <laughs> I think it's interesting. I'm having like my own like healthcare providers like confiding in me about their struggles because I think like this point of it affecting everybody is really true. I see like everybody, all the and all the care providers really struggling. And a lot of my friends that are mental health practitioners too are just like, I'm burnt, man. And so, like, taking extra good care has been something that's been absolutely non negotiable throughout this period. But it's challenging. A lot of us don't have the balance that we used to have with like different kinds of activities, things getting us out of the house. You know, for me, getting outside into sunshine every day has been really, 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 really important. I think actually your point to social anxiety before, like all my clients with social anxiety are having a ball this year because they do not have to deal with it at all. And so I'm a little worried about like post pandemic when that, you know, kind of comes full circle again.
1: Yeah. The other thing that I wrote about a little bit in Moody Bitches, I touched on in the last chapter, was that if you dig down a little bit, uh, people who really care about environmental issues are in mourning for the planet and afraid of, you know, what's what's to become of the human race, (laughs) that sort of thing. So I think that all that stuff is really all still there. It's just people don't they don't talk about it. They're not in touch with it, but it's almost like one of these background apps that's always sort of running is that on some level you look around and you know, it's not sustainable, you know, the way that we're treating the planet, it's not sustainable. And so that, that makes me a little bit anxious and depressed if I tap into
3: it. Julie, you've been very generous with your time. And I know Dominique, I I asked this question before, so you don't have to weigh into it, but the title of this podcast is "Field Tripping: Epic Trips and Psychedelics," and one of the things that you know we've touched on in passing, I think, in, in this conversation, but I'd love to go a little bit more explicit is helping people understand that psychedelic experiences, you know, a aren't these always hugely relevatory moments where you meet God or you meet aliens and everything is different, but it can actually be very, very constructive and meaningful and incremental to your lives. And so one of the questions I asked all guests is like, what has been one of the most important lessons or takeaways that you've taken out of your psychedelic experiences in the past.
1: Let's see. I'm the god of my own universe was was a big one when I was in in high school. I really I really had a very strong sensation in a, in an early trip in high school that, you know, reality is what you make it and I can I can decide what the rules are. And it's also this this idea that like everything is connected and I am connected to everything. And Alex Gray talked about once this idea that there's like a universal lattice work of sort of electric energy that connects everything. But I had a sense of everything being sort of connected, but but me belonging in that connection, you know, like I am a child of the universe. I have a right to be here. You know, I'm just as important as that as that tree, that kind of thing. So just just sort of the interdependence of everything. But you know, I have to say that my actually my most profound experiences, as much as I would love to say that they came from uh, LSD or or psilocybin or 5-MeO-DMT or ayahuasca. And, you know, I have had very profound psychedelic experiences. But the thing that really shifted a lot for me was, was my MDMA, my early MDMA experiences, and really getting a better sense of sort of self-analysis and how I tick and, you know, what makes me work. And just, I felt like I was sort of got a user manual a little bit and just, uh, it was really, really useful information for me.
2: One thing that, you know, comes up in this conversation is honestly that, you know, some of my most profound experiences have been from alternate states of consciousness that aren't necessarily psychedelic, like, you know, substance induced, but, um, but I think there's all different kinds of experiences for all these different states, but in like breath work and in meditation and in nature and in states of flow and in all of these kinds of things, as, as well as with, you know, psychedelics, that feeling of connection like that. I mean, it's like these universal things that come up, the feeling of connection being part of something. And also having that, in the same ways that you guys were talking about the, the partner as being the mirror, like having that experience often be the mirror as to what's going on with you and, in any given moment and in, in a time period. And I, I feel like, you know, these experiences put you f- face to face with whatever you need to work on and whatever's still keeping you stuck and holding you back. And And then that integration is so important. So it's almost like a map for me. You know, to have these experiences and to say, "Okay, time to go in again." And it's not like it's necessarily fun. Um, in fact, it's often very hard, and you have to garner up some courage and some bravery to go there and say, "All right, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to learn again." Prepare, to like launch. All right, here we are. Okay, whoo! And then, and then taking the space after, taking the time after to really like get into yourself, really be creative, and spend some time processing what just happened. What insights did you gain? And then how are how is that going to impact your life? Is that going to change anything? You know, I once asked a group of people in a pool, this was at like a breathwork retreat, like, what has changed for you as a result of, of doing psychedelics or doing breathwork? Like, what actually has changed for you in your life? how What do you do differently now? You know, and people actually had a hard time answering it. And so, I, I try to bring that to my own space of like what do I want to be different as a resu- result of this? Like, how do I want to interact with the world differently and what do I want to change in the world?
3: Yeah, and the truth is it's it's ineffable. It's like it's not it's not necessarily being able to point to like this is how my life is better. It's like I just feel better. It's like and that should be good enough, but in our society it really often is not uh, a good enough answer, but maybe it should be.
1: Yeah. Well, I think it's It's hard not to sound like a hippie when you are coming away with universal truths. And uh, honestly, I will say, uh, as for the hippies, the hippies were right. The hippies were right about kombucha and sprouted grains. And the hippies were right about macrobiotic eating. And the hippies were right about uh, free love and all sorts of other things. So it's too bad that sounding like a hippie is such a terrible thing. Because- I think that the more that we can approximate hippie behavior, the happier we're going to be.
3: I've long felt like I was a hippie in a previous life because I've always been so fascinated by so much of of what that experience must have been. But on that note, I want to thank you so much for joining uh, me and us on on the podcast today. I've, I've incredibly enjoyed it. I found it to be incredibly insightful uh, and immersive. So so thank you and, and keep up the good work. And uh, I'm going to check out some of your music online and, uh, You know, can't wait to uh, hear about uh, the forthcoming awareness and insights about what it means to be in a dyad, also a word I don't think I've ever used in conversation.
1: But now you will. It's a great word.
3: After sitting down with Julie and Dominique, four key things stood out to me. First, the world needs more people like Dr. Julie Holland. Julie is credentialed, thoughtful, considerate, and frankly right on most issues she advocates around. She is a force of nature that blends yin and yang in a way that creates powerful, meaningful impact. On that note, even though I agree with so much of what Julie said, there is one area in which I disagree with her on slightly, but that's probably more a limitation of the conversation than probably what she meant. Julie seemed to suggest that the world needs more yin energy. The energies associated with conception, reception, contemplation, and awareness, as opposed to the yang energies of creation, knowledge, and action. If you have trouble conceiving what these energies are, just imagine the stereotypical image of little boys and girls. Boys, and this is not an absolute statement by any stretch, tend to be more gregarious, destructive, and loud. Girls tend to be more reserved, quiet, and contemplative. This is not a perfect analogy, but it helps one understand the difference between yin and yang energies. In any event, where I disagree with Julie is that she says that the world needs more yin energy. My disagreement is that a more accurate statement is that each of us individually needs a better balance between yin and yang, feminine and masculine. Having 5 billion people heavy on yin and 5 billion people heavy on yang would not serve us as well as having 10 billion people on this planet well adapted at integrated logic and emotion that's the balance we are trying to achieve. On that note, I think it's important that we come to recognize how religion has played an important part in how the imbalance of yin and yang occurred. Julie mentioned the term religious trauma. Here's how Tom Robbins articulated it. To diminish the worth of women, men had to diminish the worth of the moon. They had to drive a wedge between human beings and the trees and the beasts and the waters, because trees and beasts and waters are as loyal to the moon as to the sun. They had to drive a wedge between thought and feeling, At first they used Apollo as the wedge, and the abstract logic of Apollo made a mighty wedge indeed. But Apollo the artist maintained a love for women, not the open unrestrained lust that Pan has, but a controlled longing that undermined the patriarchal ambition. When Christ came along, Christ who slept with no female, Christ who played no musical instrument, recited no poetry, and never kicked up his heels by moonlight, this Christ was the perfect wedge. Christianity is merely a system for turning priestesses into handmaidens, queens into concubines, and goddesses into muses. To be clear, I'm not trying to criticize religion, though I frankly do have many concerns about modern religion, but this is an opportunity to learn from the past. Finally, my favorite moment in our conversation came out when Julie said, the hippies were right. I've always been a fan of what the hippie movement was and stood for, despite it losing its way. But even I was always hesitant to be so declarative on the subject, fearing backlash. I will be no longer. The hippies were right on so many issues. As Tom Robbins said, Like the Arthurian years at Camelot, the 60s constituted a breakthrough, a fleeting moment of glory, a time when a significant little chunk of humanity briefly realized its moral potential and flirted with its neurological destiny a collective spiritual awakening that flared brilliantly until the barbaric and mediocre impulses of the species drew tight once more the curtains of darkness. Right on, man. Thank you for listening to Field Tripping, a podcast dedicated to exploring psychedelic experiences and their ability to affect our lives. I'm your host, Ronan Levy. Until next time, stay curious. Breathe properly, and remember, every day is a field trip if you let it be one. Field Tripping is created by Ronan Levy and produced by Conrad Page. Our researcher is Sharon Bella. Special thanks to Quill, and of course, many thanks to Dr. Julie Holland for joining me today. To learn more about Julie and her work, check out her website, naturalmood.com, or follow her on Twitter at Bellevue Doc. Finally, subscribe to our podcast and sign up for the newsletter at fieldtripping.fm.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of The High Guide, featuring episode number 24 from our colleagues in Psychedelic Audio, Field Tripping. Please look for Field Tripping, hosted by Ronan Levy, wherever you listen to podcasts. And remember to visit FieldTripHealth.com to learn more about ketamine-assisted therapy at one of their North American clinics, including right here in Seattle. Please check out our website, The thehigh.guide, for more information on the High Guide and for this episode's show notes. Please remember to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. Get this a heart on Spotify. It really does help more people find the show. I'm April Pride, your host on The High Guide. See you next week
2: and on the other side.